Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Rocky Twan as our guest for this podcast. Dr. Twan has a variety of substantial responsibilities at the University of Pittsburgh. He is director of the Center for Cellular and Molecular Engineering. He's the Arthur J. Rooney Senior Professor and Executive Vice Chair, Department of Orthopedic Surgery. He's the Associate Director of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. He's the Director of the Center for Military Medicine Research. He's a Professor in the Departments of Bioengineering and Mechanical Engineering and Materials Science at the University of Pittsburgh. And he's Co-Director of the Armed Forces Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Tuan, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you very much, John. Uh, As I indicated, you have a, a host of research interests. Can you perhaps give us a little bit of an insight into what your lab is involved in? My research interests really focus on sort of a mission-driven type of research program. We are very focused and interested in developing a knowledge base that will allow us to start thinking about restoring structure and function to musculoskeletal disorders or defects in the human body. This is important because musculoskeletal disorders or diseases actually is the number one cause for physical disability. And of course has tremendous economic and social burden on the society as a whole. And for example, take the disease of osteoarthritis, which is the number one degenerative joint disease in the world, that actually affects about 15 to 20% of the population. So that's a serious disease. And for those individuals who are over 65, the probability of having at least one joint affected by this disease is over 50%. At this point, there is no cure for degenerative joint diseases. And the only solution is really managing pain, managing the symptoms like swelling and joint stiffness and so forth. And then the final irreversible solution is total joint replacement. So therefore, as you can see, there is a huge need there. The way we approach this in my laboratory is to say, look, the ideal method is to come up with a way to repair the damaged tissue or regenerate that damaged tissue. And of course, if everything works out well, to even prevent such degeneration to happen in the first place. In order to do that, we need some really serious understanding of the disease and the needs that this disease presents. For example, when you have a tissue that is not functioning, most likely it's because the cells are not functioning, because cells are eventually the ultimate engineer of tissues. They're the ones who make the tissues. So if your cells are not working well, then your tissue is not going to function very well. The second thing that's wrong with degenerative connective tissue disease, such as in the case of, say, a joint, is that that structure is missing. That means there's a matrix, there's a template, there's a scaffold that cells normally live in that is now defective. The third problem is that the fact that things are not repairing themselves mean that whatever factors that normally work to maintain the homeostasis of that tissue are also not working. 
or missing. So those are the three things you have to deal with. The cells, the structure of the tissue itself, the scaffolding, and thirdly, the environment and the factors that are necessary to make this tissue remain healthy. So in my laboratory, we try to work with all three of these things. Right? The first one has to do with cells. So what we try to do is to say, okay, if you don't have cells, we will find you cells. There's only one major challenge. That is, nature doesn't really give you an extra tissue as a spare part. That doesn't exist. So we need to, therefore, find cells that, with some manipulation, can become the cell type that is needed in that tissue. And therefore, we focus a lot of our attention on stem cells or progenitor cells. These are the cells that are found in various tissues in our body. Uh, bone marrow is probably the prime example. That fat that I mentioned earlier, that also is a potential source. Muscle is another source. Bone is another source. And there are other tissues that have these stem progenitor cells. So we spend a lot of time figuring out what tissue sources we should use, how to get them, how to expand them so they keep their potency, and then, of course, finally, how to take these cells and say, hey, time to become some specialized cell. Please do it. So we need to figure out how to do that. So those are the kind of things that we work in the cell side. And, of course, recent advances in biomedicine have introduced the concept of the so-called induced pluripotent stem cell, IPS cells. So we also spend some time using or developing these cells. These are the cells that are normally from an adult a tissue, but with some molecular manipulation can turn into a cell that behaves like an embryonic stem cell. So we also try to apply such cells. Now, all of this is generally done in a way that ideally can give the patient back cells from the patient himself or herself, instead of borrowing the cells from someone else. The original cells from your own body is called autologous cells because they come from your own body, and the other ones are called allogeneic cells because they come from somebody else. Ideally, you want to use autologous cells because it won't have any immune rejection issues and, and so on and so forth. So we work very hard and try to find out and identify the proper and the most efficient cell source, or tissue source rather, for these cells. All right, so the second topic I mentioned earlier was that scaffolding, that three-dimensional space that you need to occupy when you make a tissue. Now, I am very interested in skeletal tissues in general, and as you know, that's obviously three-dimensional. You need that to bear weight and locomote and uh, so forth and so on. So that's a, it's a three-dimensional thing. And so in order to get the cells to work, you need to come up with this three-dimensional substance, which is called the scaffold, or the matrix, or the template. So we actually, in my laboratory, spend quite a bit of time thinking about this. We have two approaches. One is that let's go ahead and make something that looks just like the matrix that the cells normally make. Make a very long story short, what we finally did was to use a biomaterials science approach to make very small fibers, uh, we call them nanofibers, that basically look and behave like the natural matrix. So that's one approach. 
basically spin these things and then allow the cells to populate this material and now we will have a way to deliver the cells. The second method is a 3D printing based approach. Think of it this way. Let's say you have a, a chunk of tissue missing in your body, doesn't matter where it is. And you can go in and mount a 3D printer on top of this and turn on the switch and say, well, let's just make a three-dimensional thing that will fit right into that space at the space itself. So that's the 3D printing approach. So for that, we have developed a photo cross-linkable polymer-based hydrogel system. What that does is that essentially this material will become a three-dimensional solid with photo elimination. And uh, we have done it so that you can actually use visible light as opposed to ultraviolet light, which is most commonly used in many other technologies. We use visible light, and we shine light, and then the material solidifies and forms a three-dimensional structure. So we've used this approach as well, where cells are already embedded in the liquid, which upon photoillumination will solidify and become a three-dimensional substance that will fit exactly into the uh, missing space. So that's the second part. So the third part has to do with how do you make the environment of that tissue site that you would like to repair to be exactly healthy, healthy enough that whatever you put in there is actually going to continue to develop into the exact tissue that you want. This is now some serious biology there. So in order to figure this out, you need to find out normally what kind of signals are operating within that tissue to maintain the homeostatic state of that tissue. So towards that end, we have identified soluble as well as insoluble signaling molecules that are specific for that tissue that we can then reintroduce into that gap, that space, to allow whatever we put in there clinically or surgically or what have you, either it's 3D printed or is inserted surgically, to continue to behave. So that's the other direction that we take in our research. So just to briefly summarize, we're dealing with skeletal defects. Skeletal defects consist of many things. I already mentioned osteoarthritis. Bone fracture is another one. Tendon ligament injuries like ACL tear or meniscus tear, a rotator cuff tear, and other kinds of bone-related problems like osteonecrosis, which is essentially the rotting of the bone from inside. So those are the areas that all involve the following. You have a structure that is not functioning anymore. It's a physical structure. Is a weight-bearing structure that is not going to be able to perform the job. And our approach or our target is to find a way of creating that missing tissue in as efficient a manner as possible and as minimally invasive as possible to restore structure and function. So this is a fascinating description. Thank you for sharing. One question occurs to me as I listen to your, your overview. That is, some of the issues you talked about fit into the category of hard tissue, some soft tissue. I had the impression that the state of the art in terms of soft tissue repair was more advanced than hard tissue. Is that a 
correct presumption? Actually, it's the other way around, John. Hard tissue actually is more advanced because bone, for example, heals itself quite well. If a fracture is like a closed fracture or something that's not like a compound fracture or open fracture, generally it heals quite well. You put a cast on, you don't move too much for a little while, that hard tissue will actually heal itself, repair itself. Now, exactly how it does it is probably involving some bone marrow cells because the bone happens to harbor bone marrow, which is, of course, maybe it's sort of like a fountain of youth, kind of like it's our reserve depot of cells. And so they probably come out and they heal the space. The problem with the soft tissue is that most of them have very few cells. They are hypocellular. Cartilage, tendon ligament, for example, they don't have a whole lot of cells. Most of what they have is actually this soft matrix that they possess, allowing them to be more elastic because you can't take a cell and you go stretch it 15% longer. I mean, the cell will die, but you can stretch the matrix. So you need a matrix that is actually pretty pliable. As a result, most of the tissue, over, I guess, about 90% of the volume of the tissue is made up of things that are not cells. Cells only made up 10%. That's why you can stretch it, you can compress it, you can do all kinds of things, and the cells will stay exactly the same because they squish around, but the rest of the tissue moves around. So because they don't have as many cells, they're inherently unable to make up things as fast as bone, which has plenty of cells, actually, because of the bone marrow. The other major challenge to, say, a soft tissue like cartilage is that it doesn't have any blood vessels. By definition, it lives in low oxygen area. It's inside the joint space. And as a result, there's nothing to heal it. Blood vessels generally bring uh, new cells, bring nutrients, and so on and so forth. So you, when you have a hypocellular and hypoxic environment, the tissue actually doesn't heal as well. Now, tendon ligament are tough because they are constantly under tension. They are constantly stretched up to 15%, 20% of their length. So imagine this. You just tore your ligament, and you say, I'm going to fix it. You put something in there. Now, that thing is unlikely to be as ready as the original tissue. But remember, it's under tension all the time. Unless you, you are in bed the whole time, you don't move anything, it's very likely that you will start stretching that. Remember, the, the new thing is not ready, so it will tear again. Whereas bone, you can say, I'm going to put it in a cast. You're not moving because you're completely solidified. So actually, the soft tissues continues to be a major problem. The meniscus is another one. The radial tear in the meniscus generally only gets worse because it's constantly under loading. So actually right now, those are the main challenges in orthopedics. Bone, unless, it's, uh, what, unless the space is, that's missing is really large, what is called a segmental defect, where you know, one side simply cannot see the other side, then you have a problem. Generally, what people do is they take bone graft, meaning you dig it out from somewhere else, usually from the hip, the iliac crest, and then you stuff it into the missing space, and it will grow back. But cartilage, there's not a whole lot of cartilage to spare, number one, and meniscus, certainly, you don't have any other meniscus. It's challenging. And of course, as you know, the being athletic, playing sports is a big thing. People want to be physically very fit, and so this becomes a real challenge.
the work you've described to us, I suggest fits into a range of maturity in terms of some of the studies are very fundamental in nature, some seem to be more applied. In terms of solving these problems that you've outlined for us, where are you in, in the progression of moving things from the bench yeah. to the bedside? So some projects are at the cusp of being able to be translated into clinical trials. When everything seems to work well, you make sure all the reagents, all the device that you have, everything can be reproduced. Then you would move to a phase one clinical trial where safety is assessed. And then you go to a phase two where you start looking at efficacy and then phase three where you do a multi-center study to make sure that it doesn't matter who's doing it, it always works. And then eventually, you know, you can pick it up at a drugstore and, and uh, that's when it finally matures. So we will find out, hopefully not before it's too long, to find out whether this approach works. If it works, then we will be ready to go into the clinical trial. Like cartilage repair, is uh, we're pretty advanced in that. Other areas are less less advanced. Tendon the ligament repair, I think it's still a ways to go because of the mechanical requirement of the tissue, you know, as I said before. If something is constantly moving, it's a moving target, so to speak, you put something in there and you say, please don't move, please don't move, give me time to heal. Well, if the chances are very high that it gets displaced, well, then you kind of start all over again. So I think those things are a little more challenging. But all of those, at the end of the day, is a reflection of the property or the characteristics of the cells you put in. If you have lousy cells or cells that are underperformer, you put it in there, you're gonna, not going to get there. Ultimately, you still need to figure out a way to get the best cells. And after you get the best cells, to keep them as best cells, and then also find ways to even to improve their properties even more so that they differentiate better or they maintain their differentiated state longer. So that's biology. That's understanding the needs of the cell. That means starting with the molecular biology of the cell, that means figuring how to culture these cells in an environment that makes them think that I am ready soon to become a three-dimensional tissue. So therein lies a very interesting technical objective that a lot of us think about. And that is normally cells are taken out of the body and then cultured on a petri dish, which is flat, which is made of some foreign substance that the cell has never seen before some piece of plastic, which, I mean, nobody even implants plastic. So the cell had never seen plastic before in its entire life. And it's also two-dimensional. You put a cell on this two-dimensional structure, it gets stretched like a fried egg. And then we say, oh, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Well, all that stuff is based on a cell that's under some hardship, some abnormal, challenging hardship. So what the cell does what you measure may not have anything to do with reality because it's not living in a three-dimensional, tissue-like, mushy type of environment. So we spend a lot of time actually trying to generate a three-dimensional simulation of the original state of the cell so that we can say, when we put a cell in there, well, we're going to add substance A, B, C, and so forth, and they're going to 
respond in a certain way, we know that response can be interpreted in a meaningful way. And we say, okay, now we can then take this material, take the properties of these cells, and move to the next stage. So that's very important. Actually, that brings up a point that I forgot to mention, and that is there are actually two applications in tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. One is what I just said, tissue building. You make something that you can put in the body and it will restore structure, function, and all that. There's actually another application, and that is you can use it to recreate something that is sitting outside the body. It has no intention of being ever introduced into the body, but it's sitting outside the body, but it, it is a physiological representation of the function of a tissue inside the body. Now, you say, well, why do you do that? Well, you do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, with that system, perhaps you can find out how the disease happens in the first place. Let's say you make a normal representation, an analog, or whatever you want to call it. I call it actually homo chipians as opposed to homo sapiens because it's a chip that represents the homo sapien. So you have this little tiny homo chipian sitting there, and let's say you can make it sick, just like the tissue in vivo is getting sick. Now you can actually figure out the disease process, and maybe you can find out ways to treat this process. You can use it to test drugs, test pharmaceuticals, or even test toxicity, because now you have a true representation of that. So that's another area in my lab that's rapidly moving forward, is to make these 3D micro-tissue. And the way we did it was by using 3D printing. Some of the work we're doing right now is printing that bone cartilage interface that's in the joint surface, say a knee joint surface. So we can actually make a fairly faithful representation of that osteochondral junction and use it to ask the questions that I just mentioned earlier. How does osteoarthritis happen? We actually don't know right now. It's associated with age, but some old people don't have osteoarthritis. Some people have osteoarthritis even when they're young, so it's not a completely age-related thing. It's something to do with obesity, something to do with diabetics, and so on and so forth, but we don't know, so we want to find out. And the second thing is that as I said before, there's no cure for osteoarthritis. Wouldn't it be nice to have a drug that you can just take and you would get rid of osteoarthritis? A lot of pharmaceutical companies would love to do that. Remember, up to 20% of the population have osteoarthritis. That's a lot of money to be made if you can have a drug. The reason you can't have a drug is we don't know how you get osteoarthritis. Therefore, there's no way to design a drug. So we can figure out how, to, how the osteoarthritis begins, then perhaps we can use the system to test candidate drugs. There are many, many drugs in the arsenal. We just don't know which one works. And if there's a way to fail early, fail fast, so you eliminate the ones that are not going to work and concentrate on the ones to work, then maybe you can reduce the cause of drug development for osteoarthritis, which is currently the big reason why nobody is developing drugs for osteoarthritis. It costs too much money. It costs about $6 billion on the average for a drug to go to market. So it's a lot of money. Right? Somebody has to pay that. And the cost, most of it has to do with the testing. So we can reduce that a little bit. So making a model, an ex vivo, our body model, that can simulate 
normal physiology and disease state and also to test for the efficacy of potential therapeutic compounds or the effects of potential toxicants. That's how we can also use regenerative medicine, tissue engineering, to address some very important medical questions. And then recently, our approach actually has been selected by the space agency to implement this system on the International Space Station. Now, the reason they're interested is because microgravity during space travel does all kinds of things to the human body, and well documented in, even in the short-term flights on the shuttle. For example, uh, bone loss is a big one. Even 10-day shuttle travel will be result in 3 to 4% loss in bone density. It's as if you are undergoing very rapid osteoporosis by being exposed to microgravity. The reason for that is very complicated and it's obviously not known because you can't do too many experiments in, in, the, in the space shuttle. The flights are too short and the conditions are never the same, so it's very difficult to do good experiments. You can do experiments, but they're very hard to reproduce. So, But now the International Space Station is up there. It's a national lab. So they're very interested in actually getting really serious about developing some type of research program to address the medical needs of microgravity during space travel, as well as to use it to model Earth-based diseases. So we're very happy that our project was selected for this type of program. The clock is ticking, so we've got to get this thing ready to be implemented in less than two years. So that's the idea, is to make this microchip of the bone and cartilage complex so that it can be looked at and experimented with on the International Space Station. Very interesting. So you had mentioned before that you had two approaches. One is to repair and regenerate tissue. The other is to prevent the tissue from deteriorating. Right. You also mentioned you have a cartilage experiment that is reasonably mature. Right. So I assume the cartilage experiment fits into the repair, regenerate category. But in an ideal world, as you pointed out before, the prevention would be the preferred approach. Where is the prevention research from a state of maturity? So that's a little bit less mature. And so we intend to investigate that probably by using the microtissue system. The beauty of the microtissue system is they can be generated at a pretty high or medium throughput manner, meaning using stem cells, we can make identical microtissue units and make many of them. We can make hundreds of them. They're all identical. So it's as if you have a hundred or so, several hundred human beings that you can do experiment with. These are all human cells, remember, that are being engineered into a representative microtissue system that we believe will reflect the true physiology and function of the human tissue in vivo. So let's say we actually figure out if you do... A, B, C, this tissue will develop a disease, let's just say. So as we are introducing A, B, C, we can say, well, we actually get X, Y, Z that are potentially preventative measures we can do. They could be pharmaceutical compounds. They could be some type of exercise regimen if you can mechanically activate the tissue. And then you can say, if you put these things in there, 
we now block the nasty effects of ABC. So now you have a preventative type of approach. So as you pointed out before, there's lots of people affected by osteoarthritis. And so needless to say, there's lots of people interested in solutions to this particular issue. Right. And you have some work that appears to be maturing fairly well. In terms of time to clinical trial, are we talking like two to four years? Or Yeah, that's what we are looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while we are wrapping it up, and of course it assumes that they all work out positively, and then we should be planning for the clinical trial. Very exciting. So Dr. Tuan, thank you for sharing with us these exciting and pioneering studies in a variety of areas under the umbrella of muscular skeletal disorders and, and treatments. I'd like to welcome our listeners to look at Dr. Tuan's website, which we'll post on the podcast website. And until we meet again, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. And thank you. Have a good day. Thank you.